hear testimonies, it reminds me, ah, oh, God, you're active, you're doing stuff. Are you with me? And uh, actually, what God, this is not part of my preach, but I just thought I'd tell you. I think I'm on. Um, it just reminded me uh, last week, um, look at the stuff that you as a church are doing outside of Sunday morning. Because sometimes I think we can, you know, just think it's about Sunday morning. But when I gave up, um, when God called me out of the police force to lead the church, someone said to me, ha, you'll only be working one day a week because that's what churches do. I always remember that. But you know, last week, this last week, think about it, from Monday, the baby cafe, helping various mums with babies. Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, what, a dozen or so on the parenting course. Most not Christians. Christians giving non-Christians advice about parenting. I think that's quite cool. And uh, teams from here going into school, helping uh, years sevens and eights read. I think that's really cool. Don't you? I think that's cool. Thursday, Alpha, another dozen or so people, not Christians, coming along, hearing about the gospel. Friday, uh, children and young people, many of whom are not Christians or from Christian homes, coming along, being served, being loved, being reached. Saturday, winter night shelter, six, seven guys who would otherwise be on the street sleeping in our building. God just said to me, look what's going on. You're as busy Monday to Saturday as you are on Sunday. Sometimes it's just worth remembering that. Because actually we think, oh yeah, there is more going on. And I just was reminded as I sat there and heard those testimonies, oh God, this is good. Because it reminds us that there's more. Anyway, that's a freebie for you. Just thought I'd chuck that out for nothing. Are you well? Good. Ready for this morning? All right. Got some notes? Good. All the typos in the notes are mine. I, I read it through once I printed it and realized there's a whole number of typos errors, misses, apostrophes that should be there and are not there. They're all mine. I apologize. <laughs> Just in case I don't give it the other. Okay, okay. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence here with us, for the things that you said to us during worship, for the amazing number of testimonies things that you've done in our lives. We are so blessed, so honored. We thank you. And now as we come to your word, we come from that position of gratefulness, thankfulness. And we ask that you would teach us and you would speak to us things that you have on your heart for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so this morning it's great to be here and we're carrying on our series in the beginning, looking at the first few chapters of Genesis. And this morning the heading is rest and we're focusing on the seventh day of creation. But I just want to take a moment to recap what's already been shared when we looked at the previous six days of creation. And the first thing that I want to remind you is that the, the style of writing in this part of Genesis, I said, was History told in the style of a childlike parable. History told in the style of a childlike parable. So it's history because this is what happened. If somebody asks you, how did God make the world? How did we come into being? You can give them this story. You can say day one, day two, day three, day four, day six, day seven, this is what God did, this is how we did it. It is history. Everything was created by God, everything was really created by God. Adam and Eve, they're real people who God created, later got deceived. This is history, okay? Has everybody got that? 
This is history. This is what happened. This is how it happened. But in, a, in terms of the style, if you think about it, it is childlike. Not childish. It's childlike in that a child can understand it. You don't need a science degree to understand this. You, you can just understand. It's told so simply. You could tell a seven-year-old child, this is what happened, and they would get it. There's no technical details. There's no big long words or, or massive great ideas that are so difficult to get our heads around that we can't understand it unless we have got some kind of scientific degree. There is a sense that it is childlike in that way. And when I say it's in the style of a parable, that doesn't make it a fairy tale, right? A parable can be a story that is made up to prove a point, or it can be something that really happened that is being told to make a point. I think we struggle to get our heads around a parable, probably because most of us don't hear many, and the ones we hear are made-up stories, we assume, to make a point. But actually, a parable can be either. It can be a made-up story to make a point, or it can be a, a truth. It can be taking a part of history and telling it in a slightly shorter style, but still with the emphasis on trying to make a point. And so the writer here, who ultimately is God, doesn't give us a blow-by-blow account of everything that happens and how it happens. Because the writer in a parable wants us to understand enough of what happened to understand why it happened. And so, for example, it says, God made the stars. Right? That's what it says. It doesn't say how many stars. It doesn't say what they're made up of. It doesn't say how they suspend and move round. It actually doesn't tell us anything really much about stars except for the one most important thing about stars, which is that God made them. Are you with me? That's the key thing, that God made them. It doesn't tell us anything else. Everything else is secondary to the fact that God made them. And so Genesis is quite happy in the style that it's written to say, and God made the stars also. We know that there are billions of them. We know that they're made up of this and that. and this. People have written books. There are encyclopedias. You could spend the rest of your life reading what scientists have discovered about stars. And that's all great. What God wants us to know is, I made them. And so he moves on. Let me give you a, like a silly illustration just to get your head around this. Let me, let me imagine two, two recipes to bake a cake. Right? I'm not a baker. So I am definitely on dodgy ground here. My knowledge of cakes comes more from the eating than the making of it. But let's say I give, how do you bake a cake? Answer one, you mix flour, milk, and eggs, and heat them. I don't know, something like that, right? You know, flour, milk, and eggs, and you heat them, right? I don't know whether that's right or not, but if you do that and stick it in an oven, it will make something that you can eat, right? Let's just imagine that's how you make a cake. Right? Now, let's, then you could also have another cake recipe that says, actually, this is what you need to do. This is how you want to break the eggs. This is how you want to chill the thing. You want to use this kind of milk, this kind of filling. And it goes on, you know, page after page. You know, the greatest cake recipe in the world is four pages long, etc., etc. Both, both are actually true. Both are true. It's just the first one is told a bit more like a parable key ingredients and heat it up. It'll get you a cake. It's true. The second one is more like a scientific, getting all the cross the T, dot the I, etc., etc. Both are true, but actually very different in a sense in their length. But actually it's because this one here is getting to the key point. Flour, eggs, milk, heat it up. You work it out, 
right? This one is the dots and crosses, the T's, etc., etc. So when you think about this story of creation in Genesis 1, you've got to think of it more like it's, 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 it's pared down. It's more like that pared down recipe. It gives us the key things that we need to know. You know, when you read it, it's only a few hundred pages long. This is the creation of the world. This is everything being created, and yet it's only a couple of hundred words long. The European Union did a law on cabbages. It was 6,000 words long, <laughs> right? Even just the length of it should give us an idea that actually we're going to hit some main points here that are true, but there's a whole lot more that could be written. So when God decided to write Genesis, and he decided he was only going to have it as a few hundred words long, it's because he wanted us to focus on the key things. And I believe that's what we should focus on as we come to look at it. And the three major things that I said we've learned from the first six days are this. Number one, God created everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Whatever was created, was created over whatever time period by God, by nobody else. Big point number one. Big point number two, God created everything with a function. Everything he made had a purpose. It did something. It enabled something. It enabled it. It all worked together to enable creation as a whole to exist and function. Whether that's sun and moon and weather and rain and sky and earth and plants and vegetables, everything amazing that God made, he declared it's all good, but then he said, and do you know what? All the good things that I've made are going to work together in order to be able to sustain my very good creation, which is you and I, men and women. You and I are God's very good creation. You don't look very excited about that. I think God is very excited about it because he made everything else with the express purpose in mind of he was going to make men and women on the sixth day and everything else is going to serve those men and women made uniquely in his image to rule over. God's much more excited about us than we are, just how we are. That's the third point. God created men and women, mankind, in his image to rule over his creation. You and I are special, not because we are anything special of ourselves. If you know yourself for any length of time, you realize you are not special for any length of time. But what you realize, no, no, I'm special because I'm made in the image of God. And therefore, God gave us uh, a role that he didn't give to any other of his creation, which was actually to rule over the creation that he has made as he rules over everything. That's what I'm going to look at at my next two preaches on this. So that's what we see in the first six days, that God created all this, the heavens and the earth, and he created everything to work together in order that it could sustain men and women, who he then said, you are made in my image and you're going to rule over everything else under me, and I'm ruling over everything. Does everybody understand that? Nice and simple. Now, let's read about the seventh day. So we're in Genesis 2, 1 to 3, but just as we flipped into Genesis 2, don't worry, this is still, this is the seventh day of the seven day of creation. Genesis 2, 1 to 3 says, <clears throat> so remember the previous six days, God made this, God made that, God made that, God made men and women in my image to rule over. Chonk, that's the six days there. Then he says this, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. 
So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Okay, let's try and get our heads around this, because I think uh, it's easy to to misunderstand it. There are two concepts that I want us to get our heads around if we're going to kind of understand the significance of this seventh day, and it is the most significant day. Those two ideas are called temple and called rest. So the original readers of Genesis would have realized that day seven is not an afterthought, but it is the most important day of all. It is the climax of all the other days. It's actually what's been building. There's been two climaxes. One came with mankind, men and women, and then the seventh day was the big, if you like, climax. The other six days have all been building up to this. It sets and seals how things are going to be for all the days afterwards. This is the pivotal day. Everything has been leading up to it. And from this day, every day after it is going to be defined by this day. This is the key, the key day. And so the original readers of Genesis would have realized that this account of creation is heading towards day seven being what the theologians call a temple text. You see, in the ancient world, people realized that deities, gods, and they had many gods for all different kinds of manner of things, they resided in temples, and only in temples. That's what temples were for. That's where gods lived and ruled from, temples. They were places for gods to reside in. So just hold that thought for a moment. Try and put yourself... Back in the people who first received that, they would have understand this idea that gods reside in temples. And they're now hearing these six days of creation leading up to this seventh day and realize, okay, this is something about that. That's, that's what's going through their brains. It wouldn't go through our brains as we read it from a kind of 21st century Western point of view, but it would have been going through their brains. And the second concept that we need to understand is this idea of rest or resting. And I think because of how we use the word in English, it's very easy to not understand what they would have understood. See, many of us think of rest as being disengagement from the cares, worries, or the tasks of life. Rest is what we have at the end of a working day. When we've done our paid work, and then we've maybe come home and done our unpaid work, whatever that may be, and then I can now rest, which means I can put on a favorite episode of whatever box set I'm watching at the moment. That's, you know, that's the time when I'm going to rest. Or maybe at the end of a working week, we have a couple of days of rest at the weekend. Or maybe a few times a year, once or twice a year, we take a week or two off work and we rest when we go away on holiday and go to a warmer climate and wish that England was a bit more like that warmer climate sometimes. But in essence, I think that's what we generally think about when we hear the word rest. Most of us think about rest as being time off, time away, time not being responsible for the things of life, either that you're paid to do by your boss or that you have to do like the garden or cleaning or cooking or looking after your car or whatever those things are. But in the ancient world, this term rest was not used like that. It was actually much more used for what results the time that, that, if you like, comes after a crisis has been resolved. 
or when a kingdom has been established, when stability has been achieved, when there has been some particular work that needed to be done has happened, and now the normal routines of life can be established and enjoyed. So we tend to think of rest as being time out, time away from the responsibilities of life. They would have much more seen rest as being the normal, the normal course of everyday life. And actually, that's come after some kind of period of crisis, something that had to be done extraordinarily because of whatever's been going on. So rest, in this sense, is more about engagement without obstacles, right? You've, you've, you're a king, you've, you've, you've established your kingdom, etc. Uh, you, you, the crisis is over. Actually, rest is now, I'm getting on with the normal day-to-day business of life. Rather than a kind of disengagement, I have no responsibilities, I can chill out, I can put my feet up. So the concept of temple and rest are really, the first one, temple, is about a place. It's about where does God reside? Where is the place where God is? What is God's, if you like? You know, where should he be? We tend to think a temple, brick building, few candles, whatever, shoved away over there. Where's the place? Actually, God says, the whole of this creation is my place. This is all my temple. And secondly, it's about what happens from that place. So let me give you a few more modern examples, see whether you can get your heads around it. Think about the days of kings and queens back in the, you know, 14, 15, Henry the whatever, George the whatever, Elizabeth the whoever. Just think about this country. What would happen was when a king died, there would often be turmoil, different pretenders to, we're going to, we, I should be the king, I should be the king, I should be the queen. There would be a time of, of often upheaval, crisis, murder, power struggle. But then eventually one king or queen would stake their claim and they would, if you like, defeat their enemies, conquer the land, establish the boundaries, establish their laws, get themselves crowned in Westminster, you know, Abbey or wherever. And then, having done that, they would reign over the kingdom that they had established, if you like, from their palace. They, 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 they resided and, re- and lived in a place called a palace, but actually that was the centre of the whole kingdom that they now ruled and reigned over, having gone through, if you like, the turmoil, the crisis of establishing them as the next and rightful monarch. Think about the White House today. Don't think about the current president necessarily. It may not help you. But think about the idea of the American system. The White House is this center of authority and control, place where the country of America is run from. But you know, when a new president is elected, takes up residency in the White House, it's not a time for him or her to kind of kick off their shoes, put their feet up, have a five-year holiday. It's time to get on with the normal job of running the country. The extraordinary crisis turmoil of winning the election is over, but now is the time to get on with the job of running the country. So just trying to think of a modern, if you like, you know, something that we can easily get our heads around to help us understand back in Genesis. So with these two concepts in mind, Let's think about what Genesis is saying to us about God and what happened on the seventh day as the climax to the other six days of creation. And the first thing is to see is that the cosmos, 
which is shorthand for the heavens and the earth, all that God has been creating in those six days, that is his temple. That's what God considers his temple. This is, this is my temple. This is where I am going to reside. This is all my kingdom, and I am going to reside over it. Big picture. He has created it. He's established its boundaries. He's given the purpose. He's given every part a function. He's given specific functions to men and women. It's all his. It's his place. It's where he's going to reside. It's where he's going to be present. Is what he's going to feel. Why is God in Dan's taxi? Because Dan's taxi is part of the heavens and the earth that God created. And Dan is also there, and that brings the presence of God as well. But we've got to understand what God is creating. He's not created it and then said, right, I'm off now. Thanks very much. I'll leave you to it. No, no. I am making all this heavens and the earth, the seen, the unseen, etc. And I am going to reside over it because it's mine and I'm God. It's not a picture of some faraway God. It's not, he's not kind of invisible beyond the sky. But he is residing. He is present with that which he has created. It's not a picture of God quietly ignoring his creation. He's not a God who wears pipes and slippers and listens to an angel playing his favorite song on the harp as he eats his chocolates, drinks whiskey, and just complete oblivious to the world. God, it says, is at rest in his temple. And that temple is the heavens and the earth that he has created. And this term rest... It doesn't mean that he's having a day off or a time off. It means, it means he's actively and definitely and decisively and definitively and any other words that you can think of with that kind of sense, he is ruling over, bless you. What happens on the seventh day is that after six days of creation or creating this unique time and moment that God is going to create, make everything. On the seventh day, if you like, the picture is of God taking up his rest and ruling from his place of residence. Like a king or queen who has won the battle, has established their kingdom, now enters their palace and begins the ongoing work of ruling over their kingdom from it. So the picture on the seventh day of creation is God having created and having established his kingdom, the heavens, the earth, and everything in them, including you or me, he takes up his place of residence over which he's going to rule and reign everything that he's made over the heavens and the earth, over men or women, including you or me. See, the central truth to the creation account is that the world is a place for God's presence. It's true that God has made the functions of creation in order to meet the needs of humanity, giving you or I, men and women like you and me, water to drink, food to eat, a place to live. But that's only so that we can be sustained and kept alive. The reason why we are sustained and kept alive is so that we can have a relationship with the God who is present and ruling over the heavens and the earth. Are you with me? People use a term, the defining element of existence. It just means kind of, you know, who is, who is the defining element? What, what, who, who is, if you like, the key thing in the world? Who or what is it? The defining element of existence. And human beings are not the defining element of existence. We are not the key thing on this planet. God 
is the defining element of existence. He exists in and of himself, and he created us to exist in relationship with him. He is the most important. We are not the most important. And the reason why men and women are in such a mess, when you look around the world and into people's lives, and you are, why are they in such a mess? It is because we try and live lives believing that we are the defining element in existence. We want to do what we want to do. We want to say what we want to say. We want to sleep with who we want to sleep with. We want to set our own set of morals where actually a bit of stealing's all right as long as it's not too much. A bit of lying's okay as long as you don't hurt anyone. And if you do hurt anyone, well, as long as you don't get hurt too badly yourself, that's not too bad. We want to define who we are, what we are. We now want to define what sex we are. We now even want to define that we can change sex if we want to. It all comes from the same root. Mankind saying... We are the key things in this world. It's, it is all about us. And God says here, it's not about you. It was never about you. It was always about me. I made you to live in relationship to me, but it was never all about you. Who do you think you are? And that's the reason why men and women are in such a mess. Let me give you some verses. I just want to give you some of these that will just, I hope, hit some of what I'm saying for you. Because when you read the Bible, you realize this is what God thinks. <laughs> and he doesn't, he doesn't speak to tickle our fancies, you know, all the time. He, he writes as who he is, which is the ruler of the heavens and the earth, the creator, sustainer of all things. That's who he is. He knows who he is. He's not confused. And when you realize, when you read some, this is what he's saying. I put them in your notes there. Isaiah 66, 1 to 2. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. It's all my temple. It's all mine. I sit in one, I've got my feet on the other. Mine. That's what he's saying. Where is the house you'll build for me? Are you going to build a brick house for me? <laughs> Are you really? Brilliant. Amazing. Where will my resting place be? Again, resting, not rest. He's not saying, where shall I go on holiday? He's saying, where is the place that I am going to rule and reign from? It's the heavens and the earth, because they're my footstool, because I'm God and I made them all and I sustain them all. Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. They're all mine. I made them. I sustain them. They're all mine. Isaiah 51, 12 to 13. I haven't got time for the, one of the other Isaiah ones, but it's in your notes. Isaiah 51, 12 to 13. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you fear mere mortars, human beings who are but grass, that you forget the Lord your maker who stretches out the heavens and who lays the foundations of the earth? He says, why are you afraid of other people and what they will think when I, God, am standing right here and I'm the one who laid the foundations of the earth and stretched out the heavens? It's a good one, that now. Why are you so worried about what some... They're my creation and you're my creation. They're my creation that doesn't even know me. Why are you so worried about what they think? Hello? Isaiah 48. 13. My own hand laid the foundations of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. Right? Same idea. He's saying the heavens and the earth, they're mine, they're my temple. I own them. It's where I live. My own hand laid them. When I summon them, they all stand up together. 
He's basically, you know, when we see it, don't we? When we think, when we see, you know, Henry VIII and films about that, the king comes in and everybody stands. All the knights and the nobles and the, oh, they all stand. God says, you know what? I made everything. And when I summon them, they stand up for me. The picture that God is painting, what he wants us to understand through this account of creation, the big picture, the key thing is that the heavens and the earth, the things seen and unseen and everything in them that include livestock and cows and trees and bananas and men and women, they're all his. And he is ruling and reigning over them and he started doing that in essence from the seventh day. That was the day he in a sense said, right, that's it, I've done the work of creating now. I'm now ruling over from the seventh day and every day from that day until this day and every day from this day until God stops time, he is ruling and reigning like he is on the, from the seventh day. Do you understand that? Do you believe it? Now, that's the real question. Do you believe it? That's the other one, isn't it? See, God is convinced of this and he wants us as Christians to be convinced of it and live accordingly. We... We know, what, we know that people aren't convinced of this and they live accordingly. Don't we know this? We know people don't live like this. They live accordingly. They live accordingly because they don't believe this. They don't believe that God created and is in charge of all things. When you pray for people that are not Christians, don't pray against their behavior. Pray that they may change their belief that there is a God and that he's in charge and that from the seventh day he's been ruling and reigning over everything. Let me talk quickly about Sabbath rest. I haven't got much time, but just because it's, it's in here. Let me give you a verse. This might help you. Exodus 33, verse 14, the Lord made a promise about entering his rest. He said to them, the Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. So I think it's very easy to misunderstand Genesis, the account in creation in the day seven. And it's very easy to read back into it from our own lives, right? What we experience and to read that back and then project it onto God. So for example, sometimes I think that we might think that God must have been exhausted from all that work of creation and he just needed a day off. I mean, he's made all this. You know, I do my garden a couple of hours, I'm out of it. And God made all this, he must have needed a day off. And then, you know, having made all this trying to keep on top of it, trying to get everything to function right. I turn my back for 10 minutes, my garden's out of control. Must be a nightmare for God. He made all this and the birds and the animals. You know, it must have been chaos quickly and no wonder he needed a day off. Basically, running the world must have given God the ultimate Monday morning feeling. And so he kind of needed a day off. He needed a day off to recover and cope. But of course, that's maybe reading back in from our lives and our experience back and then projecting it onto God. God was not tired after any of the days of creation. He did not need, if you like, a rest in that sense. How difficult is it for God to say, stars? It's done. God didn't labor. He didn't toil for hours. God spoke and it happened. Everything you see, look out the window, everything you see, this was how difficult it was for God to make it. Everything. That's it. A tree. Those trees. Done. Cows. Cows. What is that? He didn't need any. He wasn't, he wasn't physically tired. Oh, I was so exhausted. I can't believe it. I had to say the word tree. I can't believe it. <laughs> he just said it. And it was. 
Because he's God. And also understand this, everything was made perfect and worked perfectly together. There was never going to be a Monday morning feeling as far as God was concerned. Because he made everything perfect. And it all worked together perfectly. And if anyone was going to do any work looking after his creation, it was going to be men and women, but he was going to be there to help them with that anyway. So really, there was no kind of nightmare Monday morning feeling. God's rest, as we've seen, was not a day off from responsibilities to recuperate, was the beginning of him starting the normal business of being present in his world, the heavens and the earth that he had created, and ruling over it. And so because God is now at rest, because God is now at rest, because God is now ruling and reigning, he now invites us as his people to enter into that rest, to live our lives from a place of knowing that God is in charge. So when we read in Hebrews, Hebrews 4, therefore since the promise of entering his rest, right, which doesn't mean, it doesn't make sense if you think, he's not, he's, God's not inviting us on holiday with him. If you think of rest as being on holiday with God, what are you going to go, two weeks in Malaga with G? I don't know. He's, he's offering us to enter his rest. In other words, enter into the goodness and the fullness of the fact that he is ruling and reigning over all things. So it says here, therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short. Don't miss it. Don't live your lives not in the good of entering God's rest. Don't fall short of it. A little bit later on, he says, For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Lots of times the Old Testament people never entered into the goodness and the fullness of God's rest. Why? Because they were being disobedient. Had to go wandering around the wilderness and other places for years. Don't be like that, is what the writer's saying. Now we who have believed enter that rest just as God said. So we recognize that God is the creator, the ruler, the one who brings order, the one who brings stability and blessing and provision to our lives personally and the world generally. And because we believe this is true for every day, every day that's true, we can even take an actual day, a literal day, and not put our hands to the wheel or our nose to the grindstone because we know that God's going to provide. We can have a Sabbath rest, one day in seven. We don't need to toil for what we need because we recognize that God controls our lives. God is in charge of things. He is our master and he's going to provide for us. I can live my life from a place of rest, which means peace, security, faith. Because Not because the world is not in chaos and disorder, because in many ways left to itself it is, but because God is in charge. God is actively ruling over this world and my life, every day, every day that was, every day that is, every day that is to come, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, whether I'm working or not, which means that I can obey God's command to take one of those days and not do the usual practical things of life that need to be done because he is in charge. And on that day which he's given me to remember, I can celebrate that he's in charge and he'll look after me. And he'll provide for me because he's ruling and reigning. And what bubbles up for me is love and gratitude and joy for him. And so guess what I do? I gather with my brothers and sisters. And together we do what we've done this morning, which is to remind each other, worship and celebrate that God's in charge. And therefore we can have a Sabbath rest. Because we can live our lives from a sense of peace. Things may not go as we want, but we know that God is in charge. That makes all the difference. 
Application. Do you believe that God is in charge? Yeah, it's true. The devil has authority on earth. It's limited. It's actually limited to the authority that God gave to mankind in which when we rebelled, we passed on for a time to the devil. So he does have some authority, but he is like a defeated animal thrashing around who knows the end is coming, and so he's trying to do as much harm as he can before that impending day of doom. But do you believe that? Because you can't enter God's rest unless you do. Because entering God's rest is not about everything in your life going smoothly and easily. If you're waiting for that, you will be waiting, I suspect, forever. Entering God's rest is about understanding that God is in charge, that he is ruling, that this is his world and his creation, and I can live my life trusting in him, whether I understand or don't understand whether things are going well or not well. Do you believe that God is in charge despite the good and the bad? things that may remain a mystery to us. With all the sin and sickness in the world, that things that happen that we know God doesn't want to happen, but they do happen, but he wants us to make a difference, we'll look at that when we look at the fall and the effects of the fall. Sometimes we get our hands involved and pray and we see God break through, hallelujah, they're healed, the person responds in the taxi, whatever, whatever. Sometimes we get involved and we pray and we get hands dirty and do what we feel God's called us to and we don't see the result. We don't see anything change. When that happens, will we still believe that God is in charge? But let me ask you again, will we enter God's rest? Will we believe that he is in charge? Will we put our faith in him regardless as to what we see or don't see? This is the fight for faith. This is why the Bible is full of stories of ordinary men and women who fought the good fight of faith. The good fight of faith begins with believing that God is in charge of all things. It's why there are stories of people who believed God for babies when they were 100 years old and barren. It's why there are stories of a whole people of God being given food and water in the desert when there was no food and there was no water. It's why it's full of stories of deliverance from slavery of one nation, uh, when there's a whole other nation against them, completely superior to them. For victory in battle against a massive giant when you're just a little boy and all you've got is a little sling and a little stone. At the core of the battle is always this. Is God really in charge? Is God really on his throne? Is God really ruling over that which he has created? See, Jesus faced this. He faced this to life and to death. Let me just explain that to you. He faced it to life because the Son of God, the one the Bible says through whom all this was created and is sustained, willingly agreed to be born in a, ba- in a stable as a baby and take on all the limitations of being a human being and to face every temptation that you or I face only in the strength and power that God would give him. And Jesus faced it to death because he knew the Romans were going to crucify him. And he also knew that he could have stopped them at any moment. But Jesus' trust was not in mankind that they wouldn't act fair and not crucify him. His, His faith, his trust, wasn't even in the fact that even though he could have any moment stopped it, come down off the cross, his faith wasn't even in himself. And he was the son of God. But he trusted that God, his father, could and would raise him back to life if he were to lay it down. And therefore, he laid it down as this supreme, ultimate example of faith, of trust, of believing 
that God is in charge. I don't know what you're facing right now. I don't know what you're facing in the future. I don't know what any of us are going to face. But I know that having faith that God is ruling and reigning, present in his temple, this heaven and this earth that he created makes all the difference. It's not going to solve all your problems. It's not a pathway to an easy life. This isn't some kind of self-help, self-fulfillment, self-enlightenment rubbish. Our bookshops are full of trash like that. But what this does is it puts God in the right place in our hearts and minds. It changes our perspective about who he is and who we are, and that's always the right starting place in relation to living every day with him and in his mighty strength. So on the seventh day, God didn't have a day off. He didn't put his feet up, but rather he took up his place of rule over the creation that he made. And today, and today, just like every day since that seventh day, and every day until he stops the world, he has been ruling and reigning over his creation. I'll leave you with a bit of scripture from Proverbs 8, verse 27. It's imagining wisdom talking, wisdom as a person, and saying, I was there in the early days of creation. It says, I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundaries so the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was constantly at his sight. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. This is what God was doing at the end of the seventh day of creation. He was rejoicing over the whole world he had created and especially delighting in his special creation, mankind, men and women, you and me. I'm finished. I'm done.